We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Dei Mater Alma Atve Semper Virgo Felix Welcome everybody, it's Steve with Sense Fidelium. Wanted to put something together. I know I usually do something for October. I've been talking about it on Twitter and things like or X. Uh, Facebook, I have to post up on sensibilitylium.com. Uh, I'll use that for this as well. But uh, wanted to, again, the problem that's going on right now. I don't think you need me to tell you what's going on. Everybody and their brothers talking about it. If, if somebody has a camera and an internet connection, they have thrown their two cents in either on Twitter, X, uh, YouTube, whatever. Uh, there's, there's, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a video. I remember a friend of mine the other day saying uh, last week that he turned on, uh, well, I guess it was YouTube, and his entire uh, subscription, the news feed, was just full of videos on what's going on in Rome. I admit, I, last week I didn't even think about it, didn't look at it, uh, didn't do much of it this week either. As everyone knows, on news shows I've done, I just I, I think it's a waste of time to complain about because literally... We can't do it. Have people, think, we gotta say, we gotta call it out. Well, if you're in, you know, wherever North Carolina or you know somewhere in Oklahoma or you know the sunshine, sunshine Minnesota, you're not. You really think you're gonna change the, everybody's mind in Rome by a tweet? Uh, if you do, please pass the hookah pipe because. You're smoking something good that I need to I need a part of of that. I, I was not aware that everyone that they're following your tweets that thing going, you know what? God gosh, Jilly Willikers. That you know, that's that's what they that's what we should be doing. I'm, thank you, Sydney and uh Sydney in New Mexico for telling me, telling us that we were wrong and this is how we should change our way. That's not gonna happen. Uh so in a sense of let's not the fit what they the old line of uh the Lord, the uh, the devil likes fishing in troubled waters. A lot of people have been posting things to get you anxious, mad, mad, angry, and whatever the adjective you want, the emotion you want to use. Um, try not to fall for that. I mean, there's a lot of guys I want to talk about because they like the drama, they like the clicks. Uh, you get clicks. You feel important if you get this out first, or you condemn it first, or you say something about it first. You get the, the little dopamine links for, hey, I like that. I clicked that. I'm following this guy. You know, he's on it. It's not easy to say, you know, hey, let's pump the brakes a little bit. And how about we just focus on doing our duty? Uh, you know, the Cardinals, they'll be able to take care of it. Cardinal Burke and them, they're, they're on it. I don't know what's going to happen with the Dubia and all that. That's not on my payroll. Uh, that's not on my pay grade level. Somebody, you know, Cardinal Burke and all those guys, they can handle it. They don't need me. Telling them what to do with it or how to approach it or yelling at the Pope, you, you know, that's not going to do anything. It will do something is me, take care of the family, playing with the kids, 
doing my duty, making sure everything, my state of life's up, getting, going to confession. Uh, because when I stand the pearly, stand at judgment day, uh, I'm pretty sure, call me crazy, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure the answer is, the question's not going to be, hey, what'd you think about the Pope I sent down or I sent you guys? Or, you know, you know it'll get more of the excuse. You know, you guys had a rough time. Yeah, that, yeah, the Pope, and you did the best you could, you know? You know, you just give me an excuse. You're not going to be able to give any excuses come judgment day. So anyway, I mean, everyone, their brother knows what has talked about seeing this. This is Tyler Durden, zerohedge.com. And Zero Hedge is not a Catholic site. So, you know, Wall Street Journal is reporting it. Again, if I go on Twitter and type in Pope Francis, you get, well, uh, say I'll do this in real time. How about that? Uh, search Pope Francis hit and yeah we just I mean that's not too shocking you'll get uh, you type that in you'll get all kinds of things any day but it's not that hard to find bad news if you want to find it hey that's on there the Mateo reparation challenge we'll talk about this now all right so first off let's Let's use a sermon that I've had up for quite some time. And I have it on the website. It's underneath, you know, worry about the uh, worry about the church, papacy, bishops, the crisis, the point. It's under the crisis, the point is from a Frank Sheed uh, quote. And I'll play a little bit of that. But let's play. Hey, let's think about this event. It's the Cadaver Synod. Under the times of today, we have 24-7 news, uh, news media, Twitter, X, wherever you want to be. Imagine this going on during social media days or CNN covering, you know, to the point that everybody has, if you have one of these, you're pretty much a journalist now. Everyone's filming everything. You can't go anywhere without someone busting out the phone and filming everything. If there's an outrage going on, everyone's got the cameras out. Somebody's drowning, they're going to put the camera out before they fix, they, they help somebody. So, Let's play and just think about that. What if this would happen today? What we'll start with today is, for the most part, a long quote with some editing and paraphrasing from the work of Father Horace K. Mann. The Synod of Rome in the year 897 was really something. Unwillingly and in fear, the bishops and other clergy were gathered together by the Pope's orders. But Pope Stephen VII had commanded that someone even more important attend the Synod. He had commanded that Formosus attend the Synod. Okay, so who is Formosus? Well, Formosus had been the Pope from October 891 until April of 896. And Pope Stephen commanded that Formosus be present for the Synod, even though he'd been dead for nine months. So the corpse of the unfortunate Pope Formosus, still more or less entire, but of course half corrupt, was dug up, clothed in full pontifical vestments, and placed on a seat before the assembly. A deacon was assigned to speak for the Pope and answer the charges laid against him, while Pope Stephen sat in the judgment seat. That's right, a dead pope, 
a dead pope, dressed up, or dug up, dressed up, propped up, and put on trial by the living pope. Now, in order to understand the charges that Pope Stephen made against Formosus, we have to realize that the ancient tradition demanded that a bishop remain with his flock through thick and through thin, and he could only be translated, which means moving him from one diocese to another, in the most exceptional circumstances. This tradition was obviously rooted in the idea of spiritual fatherhood, something that used to be important in the church. Okay, so Formosus was already the bishop of Porto. That's a diocese just outside of Rome. If you've ever flown into Rome, it's right there by the airport. He was, a di he was the bishop of the diocese of Porto before he was elevated to the See of St. Peter. And in fact, he had originally refused the honor of the papacy and had actually fled to the altar of his church from which he had to be dragged, still clinging onto the altar cloth. Now, with all that as background, let's return to the trial. So the central charge laid against Formosus was at the time of his election, he was already the bishop of Porto, and therefore his election as pope, as the bishop of Rome, was invalid. Formosus was found guilty as charged. I guess the deacon didn't do such a hot job answering. And so he's anathematized. And worse yet, his ordinations were declared null and void. In other words, all the men that Formosus had ordained to the priesthood or consecrated as bishops were declared to have never been ordained. Of course, that means that none of their masses would have actually been masses. None of the absolutions of confessional would have actually absolved anybody of any sin. None of the anointings would have actually been anointings, etc., 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 then they began abusing Formosus' dead body. It was stripped of its sacred vestments, put in lay clothing, and they actually cut off the three fingers of his right hand that he used to use to impart the papal blessing while he was still alive. By the order of Stephen, he was then buried in ground reserved for pilgrims. As his body was being dragged away for burial, flesh, fresh blood was flowing out of its mouth on the pavement. Shortly thereafter, he was dug up again, and this time thrown into the Tiber. That's the river that flows through Rome. Although some blame Pope Stephen for this, it seems more likely this was done by treasure hunters looking for valuables. The night Formosus was thrown into the Tiber, a huge storm broke out over the city, and the Tiber began to flood. The corpse was carried along by the rushing river until it was finally thrown up onto the bank near Porto. Three days later, Formosus appeared in a vision to a monk and asked him to go and bury his dead body, and the monk did so. What became of Pope Stephen? A few months later, during an insurrection, he was seized, loaded with chains, cast in a dungeon, and strangled. In December of 897, Pope Theodore II caught wind of the burial of Formosus in Porto. So he ordered the body to be brought back to Rome with the greatest solemnity, so that they, were, they processed with the singing of psalms and hymns, torches, incense, and so forth. He was clothed once again in pontifical vestments, brought into St. Peter's Basilica, where in the presence of Pope Theodore, Mass was said for Formosus, and his body was restored to his tomb. 
One chronicler reports that he had it, quote, from most religious men of Rome, close quote, that when the body was brought to St. Peter's, it was, quote, reverentially saluted, close quote, by certain images of the saints. The next pope, John IX, who ruled from January 898 to January 900, rehabilitated Formosus. He called two synods, during which he condemned the acts of Stephen's synod in order they be burnt. He forbid reordinations of the bishops and the priests who had been ordained by Formosus, but declared to be laymen by Pope Stephen, and reinstated them to their offices. Talking massive confusion. Unbelievable scandal. Sometimes it's really hard to believe the things that the Pope does or says. In the past few months, a lot of pious people have understandably gotten pretty worked up over statements made by our Holy Father, Pope Francis. The secular press and the mainstream liberal Catholic press are having a heyday. As for the conservative Catholic commentators, they seem to be scattered all over the place, ranging from doing out-and-out verbal gymnastics and cartwheels, trying to explain phrases or explain them away, to falling in apparent discouragement, anger, or even accusals of heresy and modernism on the other side. And the priests have been hit with questions like, what are we as faithful Catholics to make of all this? How should we react? Or should we react at all? What if it gets worse? We started with the trial of Formosus, the point being that whatever's going on these days, it doesn't even hold a candle to that nightmarish situation. One poor pope ordering another pope, nine months in the grave, be dug up, dressed up, propped up on a chair, charged with crimes, with a deacon answering the charges, then the vestments torn off his body, they actually tried to tear his body to pieces, but it was too strong to dismember. The fingers he used for blessing cut off, and he's tossed in a simple grave. It's unbelievable. But it didn't end there. It didn't end there. Pope Sergius III, who reigned from 904 to 911, called another Roman synod. By using violence, bribery, threats of exile, and other evils, Sergius III got the Roman clergy to once again agree that the holy orders conform, or conferred by Pope Formosus were null and void. Now this is turning into a colossal mess, because over time, many men had been ordained to the priesthood or consecrated as bishops by the men who had been consecrated by Formosus. And so now these men's ordination were suddenly declared null and void as well, which of course implied that none of their masses had actually been masses, none of their sacramental absolutions had any effect, that no one they had anointed had been anointed. You're talking about a mess. Now many of them submitted to reordination, but as you can well imagine, the whole ecclesiastical world in Italy was in a tumultuous uproar. Little Giuseppe Sixpack doesn't know if his priest is a priest. He doesn't know if his bishop is a bishop. He doesn't know if his dying grandmother had actually been anointed. 
And the reason he doesn't know this is because of the misbehaviors of the popes. Now, if the church wasn't a work of God, there is no way we could survive something like this. Pope Stephen VII and Sergius III were certainly wrong and seriously wrong. A validly conferred ordination cannot be repeated. Wait a minute, Padre, did you say those popes were wrong? Yes, I did. But I thought the popes were infallible. They are in certain conditions. And we're going to cover that and a lot of other details about papal teaching in a later sermon. The important thing today is to realize that not one of the popes who are known or are believed to held false views on the conditions which make ordinations invalid ever tried to impose his ideas on the whole church. My friends, starting with St. Peter denying the Lord three times and fleeing from the cross, throughout history, there have been crazy things both said and done by the popes. We've weathered some pretty dreadful storms. And we'll weather this one, too, at least everyone that doesn't get panicky and jump overboard. So supposing a pope says or does something that causes consternation, what should a faithful Catholic do? How should a faithful Catholic react? And should he react at all? Well, the first thing to do is to keep everything in perspective and remain calm. Keep it in perspective. Let's just step back from the concrete situation for a minute and do a thought experiment. Imagine that you're on a boat, and it's in a typhoon, so it's getting tossed around. you got the wind howling. You have 70-foot seas. And suddenly you learn you're hanging on for dear life, and suddenly you learn up in the wheelhouse you have a bunch of drunks having a fist fight. What are you going to do? Are you going to let go and jump overboard, or are you going to keep hanging on for dear life? You might not appreciate what they're doing up there, but who cares? It's a storm. You hang on. It's a no-brainer. That's what you would do. Okay. Well, by the grace of God, we're in the Catholic Church. That means we're already in the Ark of Salvation, and this ship won't sink. It can't sink, or we priests would have done it a long time ago. It just can't work like that. It's a work of God. So even if we had a bunch of characters going crazy, up in the wheelhouse, the very last thing we want to do is jump overboard. We just need to keep some perspective, remain calm, and hang on. We need to keep in mind it's a salvation issue. In order to preserve our union with Christ, we have to preserve our union with our Holy Father, the Pope. We have to preserve our union with the local bishop. We have to preserve a union with our priest. That's divine hierarchy. The hierarchy is a divine origin. And that union is not based on how we feel about it. We have to have that union on Christ's terms, not our terms. It might be crazy up there in the wheelhouse, but all we have to do is hang on. Okay? So, if we've been working on our relationship with Christ, if we've been saying our rosary, keeping close to the stackments, if we're staying in the state of grace, then even when the storms blow and things seem crazy on the outside, we should be able to preserve peace in our hearts. We should have an inner, inner peace and a calm in our hearts. That's really important to keep inner peace. The Lord works in calm and peace. It's the devil that fishes in the stormy waters. Okay? So if the Pope 
says or does something that causes consternation, take a deep breath, say a prayer to remain calm, pray for the probe, and relax. God's in charge. He hasn't abandoned us. He's not going to abandon us. That's just foundational. The first thing is we have to keep some perspective and remain calm. Second, we also need to keep in mind the Pope can't change anything that is essential to salvation. The Pope doesn't have the power to change anything that is essential to salvation. As we've said, later on we'll take a detailed look at what the Church teaches concerning the papacy, but for today it's sufficient to realize that the Pope can't change anything that is essential for salvation. He might make things pretty rough, but it won't be impossible. Stay on board. Third, get closer to Our Lady. During the Passion of Our Lord, who stayed faithful at the foot of the cross until the bitter end? It wasn't the Pope. With one exception, it wasn't the Apostles. During the Passion, the ones who stayed faithful to the bitter end were those who stayed close to Our Lady through it all. As we enter into the Passion of the Church, let's be very, very careful to stay close to Our Lady. Say your rosary, or your scapular, play, practice the true devotion to Mary of St. Louis de Montfort, or that of St. Maximilian Colby. And fourth, don't let yourself be scandalized. This is essential. Quick review so everybody knows what we're talking about here. What is scandal? St. Thomas says that scandal occurs whenever, quote, a man either intends by his evil word or deed to lead another man into sin, or if he does not so intend, when his deed is of such a nature as to lead another into sin. Close quote. So scandal is an action or a word which can lead another into sin. And being scandalized means allowing another's word or action to lead us into sin, okay? Let's take an example. Suppose a girl wears a bikini in public. By wearing something like that, she is guilty of scandal since her deed is of such a nature to lead others into sin, whether she intends to or not. Okay, so she's guilty of scandal. But every single guy that sees her and allows himself to fall in sin is guilty of being scandalized, right? So as soon as the man who is serious about saving his soul sees this girl, he'd have to quickly move his eyes and his mind's eyes away from her, okay? So the same principles apply to things like words and behavior of the Pope or any cleric. It's especially important we don't allow ourselves to be scandalized by anything the Pope says or does because this can very easily damage our faith or even cause us to lose the faith. So we need to be careful about that. We need to be also careful about what we say or think about the Holy Father because the fourth commandment applies here. And sometimes people don't seem to recognize that. Just like it applies to your physical dad, it applies to the Holy Father. We have to honor him. We've got to be very careful what we read and listen to. A lot of what passes for Catholic commentary, frankly, is just ecclesiastical porn. And that's the nicest word I can think of it. Okay? Just quit reading that book or that magazine or that newspaper. 
Quit going to that website. Quit listening to this or that person or this or that priest whose preaching is not leading us closer to Christ, who's getting us riled up and fomenting anger or hatred in our heart against the Holy Father or against the church. You need to pray for him and get busy reading things that will bring us closer to Christ and his mother. In order to keep ourselves from being scandalized, we could take the advice that St. Philip Neri used to give to his uh, directees, and, another, and he was alive during another time of very great scandal at church. St. Philip Neri used to tell his directees, I don't care what you read, as long as the author's name begins with S-T. Good advice. The inspired advice of St. Paul, you can find it in Philippians chapter 4, is perfect here. Be not anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your petitions be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. For the rest, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever modest, whatsoever just, whatsoever holy, whatsoever Lovely, think on these things. That's the Holy Spirit. Be not anxious, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever modest, whatsoever just, whatsoever holy, whatsoever lovely, think on these things. One last thought on scandal. That great talker of the church, St. Francis de Sales, says, quote, well, those who give scandal are guilty of the spiritual equivalent of murder. Those who take scandal, who allow scandals to destroy their faith, are guilty of spiritual suicide. Close quote. Well, those who give scandal are guilty of spiritual murder. Those who take scandal, who allow scandals to destroy their faith, are guilty of spiritual suicide. Okay, so if you're getting too worked up, Relax, don't worry, go have a cold one. Totally serious. Christ hasn't abandoned us. We might abandon him, but he hasn't abandoned us. We might abandon him by allowing ourselves to get too discouraged and falling in despair, by allowing ourselves to become scandalized and jumping overboard and drowning in this terrible storm in the waves of apostasy, of heresy, of schism and scandal and sedevacantism. Stay calm. Keep your inner peace. Stay close to Our Lady. Don't let yourself be scandalized. Remember, the Pope doesn't have the power to change anything essential to salvation. He can make things pretty rough, but it won't be impossible. Stay on board. Let's close with some thoughtful comments written by Frank Sheed during the terrible chaos following the Council. Frank Sheed. <clears throat> In the criticisms uttered by many, there's a failure to see Christ as the whole point. So much in the daily running of the church they find depressing. The sermons, they say, take no one deeper into the reality of God or man. This priest or that cares for nothing but money. The sick are neglected, the old are rejected. The hierarchy know nothing 
of the emotional, intellectual problems which are eating away at their people's face. The curie is simply a bureaucracy using every trick to hold on to its power. As for the Pope, it all adds up to the institutional church with so many wondering if their spiritual integrity will permit them to remain in it. But institutional Israel, the chosen people, as the prophets show it, was even worse than the harshest critics think the Catholic Church. Yet it never even occurred to the holiest of the Jews to leave it. They knew that however evilly the administration behaved, Israel was still the people of God. So with the church. An administration is necessary if the church is to function, but Christ is the whole point of the functioning. We are not baptized into the hierarchy. We do not receive the cardinals sacramentally. We will not spend eternity in the beatific vision of the Pope. St. John Fisher could say in a public sermon, if the Pope will not reform the Curia, God will. A couple of years later, he laid his head on Henry VIII's block for papal supremacy, followed to the same block by St. Thomas More, who spent his youth under the Borgia Pope, Alexander VI, lived his early manhood under the Medici Pope, Leo X, and died for papal supremacy under Clement VII, as time-serving a pope as Rome had had. Christ is the point. I myself admire the present pope. He's writing to Paul VI. But even if I criticize as harshly as some do, even if successor proved to be as bad as some of those who have gone before, even if I sometimes find the church, as I have to live in it, a pain in the neck, I should still say, that nothing a pope could do or say would make me wish to leave the church, though I might well wish that he would. <laughs> Israel, through its best periods, as through its worst, preserved the truth of God's oneness in a world swarming with gods, the sense of God's majesty in a world sick with its own pride. So with the church. Under the worst administration, say as bad as John XII's a thousand years ago, we could still learn Christ's truth, still receive his life in the sacraments, still be in union with him to the very limit of our willingness. Close quote. Well, those who give scandal are guilty of the spiritual equivalent of murder. Those who take scandal, who allow scandals to destroy their faith, are guilty of spiritual suicide. In the criticisms uttered by many, there is a failure to see Christ as the whole point. We are not baptized into the hierarchy. We do not receive the cardinals sacramentally. We will not spend eternity 
in the beatific vision of the Pope. Nothing a Pope could do or say would make me wish to leave the church. Under the worst administration, we could still learn Christ's truth, still receive his life in the sacraments, still be in union with him to the living limit of our willingness. Christ is the point. Christ is the point. So there you go. I mean, I can... Father's wisdom on that is fantastic. I don't know. There's no better sermon out there on that topic than that. I've told people, I've said, you know, the, the line from John Henry Newman, uh, the, the being deep in history has ceased being Protestant. Well, to be deep in uh, history is also to cease being anxious. So again, two books. Well, one book, you definitely get Jesus, King of Love. Get it. Read it. Learn it. Love it. Learn it. You know, know it fantastic book it talks about the night adoration in the home why you need to do it the whole thing of the price there's a price that has to be paid i highly highly recommend getting that book and he talks about using that image that's the garcia moreno sacred heart image i got it right over there i give it away at conferences but the october challenge is uh Always more, always more daring, in October, he proposed to Christian families a means to assure adoration not only one night each month, but every night of the month. In this manner, the adoration would be perpetual. Now, the one night per month is today's first, I'm recording this on first Friday. So you would get together uh, Thursday evening to do all night adoration. And if you read that, I think it in, yeah, King of Love. He talks about how in Italy, and this is on the other podcast I did on this topic, uh, Blessed uh, Pier Giorgio Frassati, uh, Blessed Giuseppe, I can't think of his last name, the dentist, and a few others. And there was thousands of men all night doing adoration. And um, the lady that runs Frassati USA talks about that, how uh, Frassati would stick there and like he's fighting to keep his eyes open, like holding his eyes, doing everything he can to stay up. And it was all night adoration at home. So people were getting hooked on doing, ad or not adoration at home, at the, he was doing it at the parish. But there were so many people doing adoration at that time that people wanted more. How can we do something else because we can't get into the church? Today we can't get anybody to go to go into the church. So these people at the time, was the opposite problem. They were trying to get in and there was no room. So they were night adoration at the home. So Thursday before First Friday, that was the time to do ad night adoration at the home. So in October, he was challenging. Probably, uh, my guess is for, you know, uh, because that's at the end of the month is the uh, Feast of Christ the King. That in that image, it's pretty much Christ the King. That's what it talks about up there. So I'm assuming it's leading up to that. It never exactly goes why. He chose that, but it's it's, he talks about the king a lot in this book, and I'm reading this from the Firebrand. I think it's out of print. You know, it's the life of Father Matteo. I mean, again, it's just read it, and you'll be like, wow, what world was he living in? Uh, so I'm assuming, again, because of Christ the King at the end of the month, they picked October. I quote, One, uh, once again, I issue a challenge in the name and for the glory of my king and your friend. What will you give in response? 
Oh, what a splendid feast of love will be the 30 nights of the month given to Jesus in these privileged Bethanies. So at the splendid feast, Christ feast of Christ the King. In one year, he received 24,000 members. Two years later, he counted 42,000. And the following year, 124,000. Adoration became perpetual in 16 countries. Again, this is night adoration at the home every night between 10 and 6, 9, and, 9 to 6, 10 to 6, whatever, 9 to 6, let's say that. Quote, uh, well, not, not a quote yet, but it is, it is well to note that Father insisted on quality rather than quantity. This extract from a circular letter written in March 1930 show how much he insisted on this point. I am preparing a special article for you, dear apostles, concerning the recent initiated nocturnal adoration, that lamp of love and reparation kindled in the Bethanies of the Sacred Heart. But first, let me tell you what great consolations have been offered to this divine heart by so many imitators of St. Margaret Mary, who watch and pray like sentinels while the Master undergoes his agony in Gethsemane. At present, it is enough for you to know that the original little group of night adorers in the home has now increased to nearly 100,000. And be it noticed that in this number, there are none of those half-and-half half Christians everywhere to be found who would only spoil a movement that requires a love strong in sacrifice and strong as death itself. The great crowd of so-called Christians know nothing of this penitential army waging war to save the world in union with the agonizing heart of Jesus. Our strength after the grace of God lies in choosing specially devoted souls for this work of reparation. The greater number are indeed the best friends of the King of Love. Once again, I send forth my appeal amidst the downfall into which Satan threatens to draw the Christian home. I send it forth in the name of Jesus crucified, flouted, driven away, not only by persecutors, but also by thousands of unfaithful friends. Secretaries of the enthronement, I address myself very specially to you. Take to heart this campaign, which is the splendid crowning of your work. Seek out zealously, but with discretion, yet another living lamp, willing to watch lovingly, while the master falls beneath the blows of cruel, ungrateful men. Sin gives him no respite. Let there be no respite in our reparation. Let us vanquish hate by love. To close this simple yet important lesson on the supernatural apostolate, I repeat what you have read and meditated in my little book, Jesus King of Love. Become saints, dear apostles, so that you may be docile instruments, bringing forth much fruit for the dear master who loves to make use of scraps of straw such as we are. Let us above and before all sanctify ourselves, filling our hearts with divine life, becoming first reservoirs, then later channels of grace, as he would have us be. Oh, never forget it. Fruitfulness is nothing else but the radiancy of sanctity. Love Jesus, love him passionately, that you may become saints. Then, whether by speech or silence, by activity or sufferings, you will be true friends and apostles of the heart of Jesus in whose love I remain ever yours devotely and gratefully, Father Matteo. Reparation is, in fact, one of the characteristics of this movement. Quote, Here is a work which carries out my entire thought, Pope Pius XI will soon tell him. 
It is the complete realization of my encyclical on reparation. This is during the audience of January 20th, 1928. Night adoration in the home is thus a creation, without doubt the most daring of Father Matteo. Pius XI had no doubts about this. In his discourse of May 29, 1930, addressed to young Italian women, he congratulates them for, quote, participating in night adoration in the home, that exquisite and delicate act of piety and of Christian love for the heart of Jesus, a delicate act of devotion. He added, quote, to start, which was needed, an apostolic heart like that of Father Matteo. In 1959, the number of adorers approached one million. Heading the honor roll was the United States with 300,000, India with 189,000, Ireland, 135,000. Italy pulled in 60,000. Spain, 49,000. The number has been steadily increasing. Obviously, nowadays, it's nowhere near that level. In King of Love, he has a paragraph in the uh, Night Adoration section. Uh, How beautiful it will be to see a family at the appointed time for Night Adoration light the candles before the picture of the Divine King and begin the vigil. As each hour passes, the adorers, like well-drilled sentinels, replace one another, one watching whilst the others take their rest. Close to the master's heart, they pray for the whole family, for the absent, the sick, and the prodigal sons. What a sweet, peaceful, and delightful night, not in spite of, but precisely because of the hour of sleep sacrificed to the beloved in remembrance of his agony in the garden and his loneliness in the tabernacle. And things you also pray for in that? The Pope. There's a section in there for praying for the Pope. Now maybe you're thinking of, okay, it's late uh, work, uh, kids, because uh, it does say talk about the whole family doing it. St. John Chrysostom talked about uh, recommending to wake the kids up just to say one little prayer in the middle of the night. So that they can get the idea of used to being used to it one and get the idea. Because apparently all these guys, the fathers, they in the desert fathers especially, the fathers talk about doing vigils. And that's for the night prayer. You, you think the Carthusians doing or uh, was it two AM they get up or, or whatever? And uh, I think some other is it the is it the Benedictine too? A lot of monks get up and do that in the monasteries, night prayers. Break the t- break the nights up. Now, full disclosure. A lot of these, especially in the old days, they didn't have electricity. So when did they go to bed, pray tell me? Were they up watching the Late Late Show with David Letterman, whoever's on right now? No. They went to bed when the sun went down. And then that gave them energy for like if they got up at 1 in the morning or 2 in the morning to break up that sleep to pray. And then they go back. They pray for an hour or whatever and they go back to sleep. Uh, So, yeah, it's going to be different if you're staying up to 11, 12, 1 in the morning and then go, man, I'm kind of groggy. Uh, yeah, you got to figure out, you got to be disciplined enough to go to bed at the right time to be able to get that sleep because we all need sleep anyways. We're not talking about you know, doing 23 hours of up uh, of being up and one hour of sleep. No, that's that's not good for you anyways. But yeah, it's the, it's the discipline and the asceticism. Again, the asceticism exercises. You get exercises to work from. So exercise your body, mind, soul, all that. We put in, uh, one priest brought up to go, uh, you know, when you're in college, 
You had people that would do all-nighters studying for cramming for a test. And yet we don't do that for salvation issues, salvation stuff. Or maybe we we want somebody to convert. We want, you know, to do something. Talk about trying to fix Rome. Well, here's an idea. It's not tweeting harder. It's getting on your knees or standing up or whatever and focusing, doing this hour of reparation. That will do something. It's like if you're running hills or running stairs in a closed gym when no one's watching, you know nobody's watching you to praise you and say, look how determined that guy is. Look how look how hard it is. It makes me cringe when you when I watch a game or something, they talk about you know, praising somebody so much, you know, like, oh, this guy did this, you know. How do they know? I mean, full when I played Juco, uh, junior college basketball, I didn't get the, I didn't get clear to play from, I had knee surgery, two, both my knees were uh, surgery, and, uh, and then I didn't get clear until January th that season. And I didn't tell, some people knew. Uh, I talked to a couple of coaches because they would ask me, "What are you doing?" I would play in the play, or shoot in the dark, you know, get my chairs out, tell coach, "Hey, I, you know, I'm going to the gym," and you know, work, you know, get my stuff down on my own time, when you know, waiting to get cleared. And my first game back, I remember it like it was, it was, it was it embarrassed me because it was like a Rudy like thing. Uh, come out of the locker room after the game's over and everyone's chanting. My, I can hear in the locker room, like, what are they doing? They're chanting my name for some reason. And I come back out and everyone's just jumping, you know, just loving it. Coach Keneally, never, he was the soccer coach. He told everybody and just that I hated, that embarrassed the you-know-what out of me because uh, I didn't want that. I remember one, you know, <laughs> it was like coming off a screen. I, I drilled this three, but... Uh, they called it. They they blew it off. They blew it off because uh, something was on the rim or something like that. I can't remember. It was perfect. Great shot. You know, just coming off the screen, turn shot, bam. And uh, I was like, guys, no, it didn't count. People were, you know, <laughs> people were cheering. Go, guys, it didn't count. What's what? Why are we up? What are we jacked about here? I was like, darn it. Oh well. But uh, so yeah, it, you don't want the. I just never wanted you know tell everybody what you're doing. You know, like post it online. I'm going to do this. Let me know. I'll pray for you. Just do it. And here's a Saint Isaac the Syrian, which the ascetical homilies of Saint Isaac the Syrian are right here. It's a solid, it's for the first time been translated. And uh, he has a, a sermon on vigils, night vigils. Here's a little thing. This is from the Power of Silence. A little excerpt. Prayer offered up at night possesses a great power, more than the prayer of the daytime. Therefore, all the righteous pray during the night while combating the heaviness of the body and the sweat and the sweetness of sleep and repelling corporal nature. There is nothing that even Satan fears so much as prayer that is offered during the vigilance at night. For this reason, the devil smites them with violent warfare in order to hinder them, if possible, from this work, as was the case with Anthony the Great, Blessed Paul, Arsenius, and other desert fathers. But those who have resisted his wicked stratagems even a little, who have tasted the gifts of God that are granted during vigil, and who have experienced in themselves the magnitude of God's help that is always nigh to them, utterly disdain him and all his devices, which of all the solitaries, though possessing all the virtues together, could neglect this work and not be reckoned to be idle without it. For night vigil is the light of the thinking, 
and by it the understanding is exalted. The thought is collected, and the mind takes flight and gazes at spiritual things, and by prayer it is rejuvenated and shines brightly. Uh, there, was, uh, there was also examples of people saying that uh, when you do this discipline, be able to get up at night and do the prayer. You won't feel groggy like you were, you know, taking coffee or energy drinks to stay up to be able to focus to try to cram for that test the next day. Totally different, especially getting your mind up uh, to heavens and God. So, again, try to take up this, uh, try to take up this challenge. October, people are wondering what to do. Uh, people tweet all day long. Talk is cheap. Let's see some action. How much do you want? The price needs to be paid. So if you want, you want by, hey, I wish the church would be better. I wish somebody would convert. I wish my family members would convert. Father Mateo perhaps, you know, speaks about it all the time. There's a price for that. There's a price to be paid. Do you have it in you to do that? Do you have it, the willpower, to make that price? If you can't do the hour, start low. Start a half hour. Maybe 15 minutes. There's some great prayer. The booklet is on the website. I'll put the links underneath in the show notes. You can get the booklet. I think Amazon has it. I mean, it's 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 got some solid stuff. I mean, there's times when you're you got your arms out and you're praying five Our Fathers, five Hail Marys, five Glory Bees for your family. Uh, you're saying prayers for the reign of the Sacred Heart. You're kissing the wounds on the on the crucifix in reparation while saying some prayers. This is for the, the first one is kissing the side. Uh, the crucifix, the wounded, the sacred wound on the side for the Pope. <laughs> so, you want to pray for the Pope? Here's a great idea. There's some penance needs to be done. The price needs to be paid. And tweeting and complaining and arguing and complaining and you know, being upset about it won't do a darn thing. God love you. Have a great rest of the night.